everybody and welcome back to the conversation. I am John Iderola. In just a little bit, you're gonna to wanna to stick around because we have a candidate for the fourth district of Georgia, William Haston, is going to be joining us. Before that, we are lucky to have a candidate in studio, Christopher Armitage, a candidate in Washington's fifth district. Welcome to the studio. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you John. We appreciate you coming out. Now, we've talked previously. Uh, but it's been a little bit, so we're gonna we're gonna give people an update on how the race is going. We're gonna talk a little bit about uh, your opponent, but for people who might not be familiar with you, I wanted them to get an idea of who you are, what your background is going into this race. Yeah, I have a pretty unique background compared to most progressives. Uh, so I served two enlistments at the Fairchild, or Fairchild Air Force Base, the base in our district. Uh, I was security forces. I did law enforcement and uh, 911 operator work when I was stateside. Deployed to the Middle East twice where I did security on the Iraq-Kuwait border and was on the Oman Emirates border as a base defense operations controller. While I was active duty, I earned an undergrad in criminal justice and a master's in homeland security. And then I got out of the Air Force and was pretty done with all that and spent most <laughs> of the last two years as a professional stand-up comic. And now here I am. That's a switch. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. that's interesting. So so tell me a little bit about running with your background in the, arm, uh, the armed forces. Air Force, yeah. In the Air Force, yeah. Um, so like uh, traditionally that is thought of as, well, if you're gonna be running for office, having a background in the military is certainly helpful. Um, especially if you're in an area that might be a little bit more on the conservative side. Have you found that? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It just gives the you know the the things I believe a little bit more weight. You know, when I talk about how you know once elected, I want to be I want to push to be appointed to the House Homeland Security Committee and make climate change the top priority on the House Homeland Security Committee. Carries a little more weight since that's what I studied. I spent years mm-hmm. studying terrorism in school and actually you know going to the Middle East and 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 going you know firsthand there. So um, you know the same you know I'm, uh, with my law enforcement experience. When I say we should decriminalize all drugs, it carries that extra weight because I've been there and I've seen it myself. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, that it, that background really isn't what a lot of people are expecting. And it, it, uh, it just the, the things I believe, mm-hmm. you know, carry extra. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, that firsthand experience. So you you served, you said the Iraq-Kuwait border. Yeah. Um, so let's say you, you make it into the house and, uh, you know, maybe we'll be lucky enough to have a Democratic president. Maybe you'll be in the house and it'll still be Donald Trump. And um, you know, someone starts beating the drums of war for Iran, or there is an escalation of our involvement in the war in Yemen. Um, what is your background, your experience? What do you think that will bring to you, to your either advocacy, to what you're advocating for in terms of policy? Yeah, well, even earlier today, I actually got to meet with some folks from Code Pink, mm-hmm. and so I made their pledge to divest from, you know, not not accept any money from the war machine or you know the military-industrial complex. I think one of the most important things we could do to make sure that we're not getting involved in future genocides and coups is to meet the standards of the International Criminal Court. Now, right now, they disproportionately penalize people from Africa. Meanwhile, most of the industrialized world just doesn't face consequences for overthrowing democratically elected leaders, giving bombs and guns and tanks and planes to countries that are committing genocide. And you know we've been fed this myth for so long that capitalism spreads democracy and spreads freedom, and we continue to see that that's not true. So you know, in Congress, making sure that there's no profit incentive to being at war constantly, there's no way for defense contractors to make money off of that, for politicians to make money off of that. Getting those upstream causes is absolutely one of my top priorities. Yeah. And another of your top orders you mentioned was climate change, which I'm always glad to see someone at the congressional level that's making that sort of a front and center part of their candidacy. What would you like to see done in that area? 
Well, I'm a supporter of the Green New Deal. I'm a member of the Sunrise Movement. It's the group I'm the most proud to be a part of, probably. And so, you know, the Green New Deal, the resolution that it sets, is to me one of the greatest pieces of legislation ever proposed. The idea that you're going to say, even if you don't believe in the science, Here's a jobs program. Mm-hmm. Here's a living wage. Here's all these things that people, you know, in our district, we have areas that have 30% poverty rate in some of our counties, three times the national average. We have areas with over 10% unemployment. That doesn't even include the people who are underemployed or people who've been unemployed mm-hmm. for a long time. The Green New Deal is going to do so much for this country. It would, particularly in our district, in those rural areas where people are just they need jobs, they need health care, they need mm-hmm. opportunities, and why not wrap it up in opportunities, uh, you know, making the world safer and cleaner? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the race. The current incumbent is Republican Kathy McMorris Rogers. And uh, so I was looking at your district and, and the state. So your district, um, over the past like four or five presidential elections, has trended more Republican with each election. There were five counties that had voted both times for Obama and then switched over to Trump. So with that sort of district, how is that influencing the way that you're campaigning? Well, so a lot of how I talk to people about this race goes back to the last Democrat to hold this seat, Tom Foley. He was Speaker of the House and he lost his seat in 1994. He was first elected in 1964 and the way that he won those rural counties was because he went to them. He spent as much mm-hmm. time there as in the more metropolitan areas. You know, People could say, Tom is my friend. Even if they disagreed with him on policies, they knew that he had good character. They could see him out on the street, they could see him at the grocery store. And you know, I've realized the more we get out there that um, a, a grassroots working class progressive has more in common with a Trump Republican that's working class than an, an establishment elitist corporate funded Democrat mm-hmm. will ever have with the 99%. And we continue to see that. There's at least one person who has my bumper sticker next to a Trump bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. If he wants to, you know, if, <laughs> if that's how he wants to vote with me and Trump on the same ballot, when I told him up front exactly how I, you know, I support single payer Medicare for all, K through 16 tuition free, if he still wants to do that, I appreciate that I'll have his vote. So what was his response? Well, he was so he because was, a lot of these policies that you support, presumably Trump does not. He so he was there for a really interesting reason. Now, first of all, he said he supports Trump because he's no BS was the exact term, and mm-hmm. uh, that he's not a politician. And so I think that the the more we get out there, the more I'm learning. People just care that they're not voting for more of the same. Mm-hmm. You know, they they look at the government as a monolith. They see people. You know, they don't care what your record looks like. If you've been part of the machine for 30 years, that's been disenfranchising them and making mm-hmm. their lives harder. They're not going to be happy with you. They're not going to vote with you. Vote for you. And so these people, you know, working class people. Uh, for the most part, in our district, they they don't care about whether it's multi-payer or single-payer. You know, and and when I mentioned to him too, you know, I had a commander who once told me uh, the best answer is the right answer, the second best answer is the wrong answer, and the worst answer is no answer. Mm-hmm. And right now, nobody's bringing answers to the table. Uh, you know, he he responded to that. But you know, it's not my job when I talk to him to uh, pitch him on the presidential race either. Mm-hmm. My job is to get out there, talk to people, hear their stories. He had a really unfortunate situation where um, his his 21 year old son died uh, from completely preventable cancer. Oh wow! And uh, they had to run a genetic test. They wouldn't run it until he was showing symptoms, and by then he was gone within six months. So, 
you know, I guess he's just looking for the integrity candidate. He's looking for the candidate who he believes in their yeah. judgment. And most people have never met someone running for Congress. And one of our goals is to make me the most accessible person mm -hmm. in Congress. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your transition from um, in the military, stand-up comic, but then running for office. So you volunteered for the 2018 challenger to make Morris Rogers? <laughs> yes, uh, I did. I hosted a fundraiser for her and um, did want her to win. Mm -hmm. You know, um, what, what do you think that you learned from that experience? Not just you know volunteering on a congressional campaign, but volunteering on a campaign that just a couple of years later you would be running for. Yeah, I mean, the number one thing was that um, I think people can smell out when you uh, you don't want to say where you stand on the issues, mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I felt. I felt I think a lot of people have seen that in a lot of different races. They can tell. When you don't want to say how you really feel about a, a particular policy, and you're dancing around it, and um, you're not going to win any votes that way. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got to meet folks who worked so hard because they care about the cause. They were giving night and day. Their whole life was dedicated to trying to flip the seat. Um, but I also knew a lot of those people felt betrayed because they couldn't get a commitment from the candidate for single payer. Mm -hmm. Which I think the more research you do, the more you see that it's actually the most efficient system. If you want to get rid of the bureaucracy and get rid of all the extra steps, mm -hmm. um, you know they couldn't get commitments on a lot of different policies, and people'd rather vote for someone they disagree with who's honest than someone who won't tell you where they stand. So let's turn now to the one that they have been voting for in the past few elections. So she's she's been in office for a number of years now. Um, you, you were saying that some of the, the voters who support you and Trump, they like someone who's not just an insider politician who just says what they think you want to hear. Um, what do they see when they see Kathy McMorris Rogers? Is she, do they see her as, the, as that establishment, you know, inside DC person? They see her, I mean, amazingly, I think that she's just good at flying under the radar. The voters who vote for her, they just see the R next to her name. They've never met her. They've never spoken to her. She comes in and when there's a parade, she's known for uh, coming in and getting a photo op on the float before the parade starts and then going home. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, people are ready for that change. So many of these communities have just never been visited ever. Yeah. And um, you know, she right now she's actually Trump's Washington fundraising chair. Mm. So uh, you know, a good reason for people to help contribute to the campaign is because <laughs> they consider our district a stronghold. It's plus nine red right now, but we know we can change that. You know, we were fortunate enough to to really have some folks look at this race and break it down. And when you do, in the past twenty five years that this has been, uh, you know, a Republican district predominantly. Uh, we haven't run a single veteran. We haven't mm -hmm. run under anyone under the age of 50. We haven't run anyone uh, with a background in national security. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to say that you're a changing of the guard when you kind of yeah. look the same as everybody else who's run. Yeah, and you, I mean, you point out it's plus nine, but we've seen bigger swings than that in the midterms uh, in 2018. And uh, it's been trending more conservative, but it wasn't that long ago that it was voting for Democrats. So. It's certainly not impossible that that could happen again. Um, one last thing, because I always I like to do research both on the candidate I'm interviewing, but also who they're running against. And the most recent news for Kathy McMorris Rogers was the result of an ethics panel investigation that showed that she had misused campaign funds, that she had had sloppy bookkeeping for a number of years. Is that penetrating at all in the district, or does that seem very removed from people's lives? The only way we're going to break through the Fox News bubble. Is by shaking people's hands, getting mm -hmm. to know them. I, uh, I actually ran into um, one of the people on her fundraising committee not too long ago, 
and uh, just complete happenstance and we ended up having a nice conversation. Hmm. She went into it and thought she wasn't going to like me because I have a, you know, I'm a democrat. And you know, we were able to, you know, find where the Venn diagrams overlap. I talked to a lot of people about about that, you know, and and so that news isn't getting through, but that's not what's going to get through. What's going to get through is conversations, is volunteers, is connections. That's that's how Tom Foley did it. That's mm-hmm. that's the you know the last person who it worked for in our district to the point where he became the Speaker of the House. And how poetic yeah. is it going to be when our current representative, who they're so sure is in a strong position in that district, she doesn't even show up. Mm-hmm. She's Trump's Washington fundraising chair. Yeah, and almost you know almost twenty years later, she loses her seat. Yeah. We can Perhaps. do it. Armitageforcongress.com. I was actually just going to say uh, for for donations and volunteers, uh, looks like you got the the website there um, <laughs> with some uh, specific sections there. Uh, well, Christopher, we appreciate you coming out and talking with us. Thank yeah. you. Good luck with the race. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. We come back. Uh, we got another candidate for you on the other side. Welcome back to the conversation. Before we jump into our next interview, I just wanted to let you know about two bits of programming you should know about. One, it's TYT programming, and that is that there will be new episodes of Happy Half Hour coming soon, streaming on our linear platforms, but also available for members. So if you're not a member, you're gonna to wanna to see that hosted by Brett Ehrlich. It is always a ton of fun, and it is a nice antidote to the serious news of the week. So definitely become a member so you can see those new episodes when they start very soon. But also, this is outside of TYT, but it's for friend of the show, Francesca Fiorentini, her special Red, White and Who was just last night on MSNBC. It was awesome, has an appearance by Bernie Sanders and a great discussion of healthcare problems around the country. Now, I have a feeling that they probably cared a lot about the TV ratings, but I'm sure they're also watching to see how many people are downloading it from their website, tweeting to them about it. So whether you saw it or not already, go check it out. Reach out on social media to MSNBC because we wanna give them the incentives to provide more spots for progressive hosts and progressive commentary on the channel. And you can help make that happen by supporting Francesca on Red, White and Who. Now with that, we jump into our second interview of the show. William Haston is a congressional candidate for Georgia's fourth district. William, welcome to the show. Hey John, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to have you here and uh, excited to uh, catch up on uh, with you on the state of the race. Um, it's been like three weeks since I talked to, with you, I think. Um, so yeah, just a little over that. Yeah, so we're moving closer to uh, the elections. But for people who might not have seen our initial conversation, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this race. Uh, so I decided to jump into this race uh, to mainly fight for the economic dignity and prosperity of everyday people. Um, we see over and over again that our system's kind of been bought out. Uh, and our incumbent uh, that is currently sitting in the seat in the congressional dist- in the Georgia's fourth congressional district uh, is one of those corporate dims in my mind. And so um, kind of seeing it and seeing what's going on in our district decided to jump right in and, um, and you know, throw my hat in the ring and, and try to win this thing. So you, you said it's uh, it's made the grounded and concern for economic dignity. Tell us a little bit about the state of the district. How have things been under the current incumbent? Uh, so our district is, um, you I guess you would consider it kind of a middle class district. Uh, it's it's uh, one of those huge southern gerrymandered districts. Uh, we've got quite a bit of urban population, some suburban, and then a little bit of rural uh, kind of mixed together. So our our uh, our poverty rates are a little bit higher uh, than the national average. Our unemployment rate is about three and a half percent higher um, than that of uh, the national average in the state of Georgia. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, 
um, our district is kind of in need of some things. You know, we're yeah. in need of a little bit of a boost. Well, you know, um, I, I do want to return to the current incumbent and talk to you a little bit about him in a bit. But um, when we're talking about the state of your district, I saw in my research that Georgia has the fourth highest uninsured rate. And throughout this primary, we've heard a lot of talk about you know whether, in terms of healthcare, if the ACA should be strengthened, should Medicare for all be instituted. It would I would imagine that in Georgia the stakes are are even higher than usual because of the high uninsured rate. So if you were to replace the incumbent, what would you be advocating for in terms of healthcare? Absolutely. So I am a huge proponent of Medicare for all. It's one of my top issues that I'm running on. Um, and the, and the reason that we're so highly uninsured is because Georgia has yet to accept the Medicaid expansion offered by the ACA. Uh, I think Medicare for All takes that out and provides people health care. Um, right now, we're looking at just giant insurance markets um, versus actually insuring people um, and giving them the ability to go to the doctor. You know, we always hear here in Georgia in the campaign ads, you know, everybody is going to have access to health care. But access is, is one thing. Actually being able to go and see a doctor when you need it is an entirely different thing. Uh, and that's why I believe we need Medicare for all. We can't wait. We need it now, uh, especially here in Georgia, where, like I said, without that Medicaid expansion, there are tons and tons of people who are uninsured or underinsured. And they're being crushed under the weight of premiums that are continuing to rise. You know, I know that there have been a lot of state level efforts to try to push for either Medicaid or Medicare expansion, oftentimes because Republican governors or Republican state legislatures have been opposed to it. Have has there been that sort of activism in Georgia that, that perhaps you could build on in your candidacy? Absolutely. So there are tons of, of progressive candidates at the state level running to do just that. They want that Medicaid expansion. They want to, you know, open up the the marketplace to tons and tons of people who right now just don't have the option. Uh, and you know, at, with it being flu season right now, and we're seeing our hospitals here in Georgia fill up, um, there are so many people that are in need of care, uh, but they're unable to get it just just for the simple fact that it is political stubbornness. You know, it, it it takes political courage to stand up to you know your fellow Republicans and say our people need this, uh, and right now we don't have that, and so our progressives especially here in the metropolitan Atlanta area, are really fighting to try to get that for more and more people. Yeah. So let's talk now about Hank Johnson, the current Democratic incumbent. Um, you know, primary races are always uh, tricky uh, because yep. you have to differentiate yourself, not, not against someone who necessarily disagrees with you on everything, but someone who you might have some overlap. So um, what are some of the biggest policy differences that, that you would offer as Congressman for the, the fourth district versus the current incumbent Hank Johnson? Absolutely. So my campaign is kind of built on the five pillars of the Progressive Economic Pledge, uh, ending corruption, the Green New Deal, uh, higher wages, college for all, and Medicare for all. Uh, those are all things that I think differentiate me from Congressman Johnson uh, just on their face. You know, whenever, whenever I come out and say, I think we should tie the minimum wage to inflation, that would raise it to almost $22 an hour. Uh, that is a radical idea to those who've been in Washington uh, for, you know, six, seven terms now. Uh, and, and to say that that would actually raise up people uh, beyond what you know some of the more popular things are right now. I think UBI being one, uh, you know, raising that minimum wage, it, it changes you know people's lives drastically all at once. So you know it would triple folks' income mm -hmm. uh, who are working on minimum wage. And then to say you know when when we talk about ending corruption, it's not just you know get the money out of politics. Obviously, that is the biggest part of it. 
but the other part is to close that revolving door. You know, you having government officials go into industry and come back in and ostensibly, you know, use their position to further the industry they were just in is wrong. And so, you know, differentiating ourselves and saying that that is the fight, you know, without ending corruption, none of the other stuff is possible. And so, you know, hitting the ground running and saying no more uh, is, is the biggest differentiator. So let's stay on the corruption for just a minute because I believe in my research it showed that you you support not just you know more campaign finance reforms but actually a constitutional amendment to get money out of elections. Is that correct? Absolutely, one hundred percent. You know, having that ability to not only say that you know the courts have decided this, but that it constitutionally no more we will publicly finance elections uh, would change everything. You know, for a candidate like me. Um, who is raising money from through the grassroots um, and having to you know send out the emails, do the social media posts, do the constant calling and and trying to raise up that groundswell, you know, public financing elections and not allowing corporate interests to buy off politicians um, is a total game changer for having actual representation for everyday people. Yeah, so let's talk now about the race. Uh, it's been a little bit longer since we last spoke. Um, in terms of like communication from the DNC, the 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 DCCC, um, that sort of thing. Uh, in terms of Hank Johnson, are are we seeing um, like is there is there concern about your candidacy? Is there the possibility of debates? Um, what what is the the future of this race going to look like? At this point, uh, as far as the DNC and the DCCC go, I have yet to hear anything as far as you know debates or possibilities of you know that that imminent you know doom that that seems that uh, incumbents are facing here recently. Um, but I can imagine that as we you know as we get further into the spring, uh, kind of running up to the presidential primary and then into our primary, uh, that things will start to heat up here in Georgia, uh, especially with you know all of the races. Uh, that are right around our district are are heavily contested, mm-hmm. uh, including ours. And so I can imagine that as we get closer, there will be a lot more opportunities for uh, Congressman Johnson and I to engage one on one in debate. Well, I imagine that you're probably pretty supportive of it. Has he given any indication if he would be willing? Do you know if in past primary challenges has he been? Will, will he engage in debates? Oh, absolutely. I think he will engage in debates. Uh, I don't think that there will be. Uh, too much reluctance to that. I think it's just a matter of, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, for uh, us to jump onto his radar. I think that that's going to be the biggest thing. Um, you know, you get kind of comfortable after seven terms, and, and you know, it takes um, someone really making a substantial push uh, and getting people talking to you about that person before you're willing to kind of engage. Yeah. And so I can imagine uh, that that's, that's kind of how this one's going to go. And so overall, what what has the experience been like? You're now you're like a month more into the race in terms of uh, being able to generate um, um, uh, donations, especially with you. You have a very progressive campaign finance strategy, uh, getting volunteers and those sorts of things. How is the race proceeding? Uh, it's actually going it's going fairly well. Uh, we're still kind of slogging through the fundraising as as all you know uh, first time upstart candidates do. Um, but it, it, it you know it's moving along. Volunteers are starting to. You know, sign up and, and they're raring it a bit to kind of get into the fight in 2020. And so we're looking to take that excitement and really run headlong uh, into knocking doors, making those phone calls and really getting getting our name out there um, and preparing for, you know, getting further and further into the you know, the primary season, uh, definitely uh, getting the boat out. 
Now, um, I want to ask you about something that probably doesn't come up a lot in just your you know, talking with potential constituents. But a number of congressional candidates have been uh, pretty quiet on the topic of impeachment, which has dominated you know national news over the past couple of months. Um, you have not been; you've been pretty outspoken about it. Um, what, what led to that decision to 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 weigh in on something that there are a number of people that think that it might be very divisive? I mean, you're not like in you know a particularly swing district or anything like that. But talk to me about making that decision to be outspoken on this issue. Yeah, honestly, it was it's from our constituents, you know, uh, from attending tons of town halls over the summer and hearing constituents constantly ask, when are we going to impeach? Uh, the folks here in this district have been asking that question since early June. Um, they see the things going on. They know that it's not right. Um, and in, in, in all reality and in all honesty, um, being in a majority, a minority district, uh, knowing full well that the people within this district could not get away with the same things. It leads to the question of what are we going to do about it? Yeah. When do we fight back and how do we put our foot down and say everybody in this country will have the law apply to them? Yeah, see when you say it like that, it's just so simple because <laughs> I've been very frustrated for the past couple of months that like, you know, if it's you know, people in the media, uh, politicians, even Democratic leadership, they talk about it almost exclusively from the point of view of how will this affect my reelection chances? How will this affect you know November 2020? Um, but when you communicate like that about what it's really about at the end of the day, I have to imagine that must connect with people a lot more effectively. Absolutely. I mean, in just saying that, you know, you're walking around in a world where you, the President of the United States, believes that he can get away with anything. There's not. He feels like. And he's been enabled and emboldened by those around him to think that he can just get away with committing crimes. He can get away with withholding aid. He can get away with, you know, bribery and extortion. Um, and having the American people behind those who had the political will and courage to say, we're going to stand up and we're going to push back, not to be timid about it, but to boldly say, you're not above the law. You know, I saw a ton of tweets and, and there were all the interviews of saying this is a sad day. And the thing that I kept saying over and over again was, it's not a sad day when you're standing up for democracy. It's not a sad day when you're doing what's right and fighting back. And that's exactly what it is. It's not sad, it's that the hand was forced and you have to do something about it and you can't back down and you have to boldly fight for what's right. Okay, well, I, uh, I can't disagree with you there. Uh, William, where can people go to find out more about your candidacy? Uh, it's williamhaston.com. Uh, all of our social media is William, F-O-R-G-A and the number four. Uh, please, please, as we round out the fundraising quarter, donate. Um, we're trying to make a big splash into 2020 and really run headlong um, at trying to win this race. Okay, William Hayson, candidate for Georgia's fourth district. Thank you once again for joining us on the show. Thanks, John. And for those of you at home, um, I hope you enjoyed those two interviews. Obviously, we have a lot more planned. Um, but also, if you stick around, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, uh, Jank is going to be back in studio. We're going to have a post game for you. And um, so hopefully, it'll be a lot of fun. Stick around. We'll see you in just a little bit.